Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast, an extension of doodlekisses.com. I'm your host, Adina Pearson. Doodlekisses.com is the social network for Labradoodle and Golden Doodle owners, wannabe owners, and the doodle curious. The goal of this podcast is to provide education, entertainment, and connect with our Doodle Kisses members on the topic of Labradoodles, Golden Doodles, and dogs in general. Today, I'm bringing you my interview with Pat Hastings. If you've been in the dog world for a while, you might recognize that name. Pat Hastings of Oregon has been involved in the dog world since 1959. Along with her late husband, E.R. Bob Hastings, they were professional handlers for many years, and Pat began her judging career in 1991. She currently judges five groups. Pat has judged many nationals, including the Doberman National four times, a club that honored Pat and Bob with its Lifetime Achievement Award. Along the way, Pat has chaired local shows, national specialties, and a major benefit for the, quote, take the lead. As a highly respected educator in the dog world, Pat has always endeavored to teach by example, to approach all aspects of the sport with respect, common sense, and personal integrity. She has presented seminars for over 25 years around the world, has authored four best-selling books, and produced a popular DVD in addition to writing numerous articles for a variety of publications. She's a great believer in the value of mentoring and has worked with novices and new judges, providing information, moral support, and encouragement. Her years of dedication to the sport of dogs led her to being awarded the 2014 AKC Lifetime Achievement Award in confirmation. Okay, so clearly Pat is an expert in judging confirmation and in dog shows and handling. So what is she doing on our show that's about doodles who can't be shown in confirmation? Well, she happens to have written books on puppy development and and figuring out, judging whether a puppy has the proper structure, right? So how it's shaped in order to fulfill the need that it was bred for. And she has started consulting with Australian Labradoodle breeders and helping them choose breeding prospects and helping them kind of in the allocation process and choosing, you know, where to send each puppy as far as whether it's going to be a breeding dog or join a family that's very active or a family that wants to use the dog for therapy work. So she has become more familiar with the world of Australian Labradoodles and kind of what breeders are looking to create in that area. So I thought it would be so neat if she came on the show and talked to us about structure and what that means and how it's relevant for us doodle owners. So I'm excited and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Pat. Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited that you're here. I don't remember when I first heard of you but I know it's been a while, but more recently in the last year, I saw a picture of you evaluating an Australian Labradoodle's litter. And I thought, oh my goodness, I have to have Pat on the show. (laughs) I'm sure our listeners can, can learn a lot from some of your wisdom and experience. I've been involved with the Labradoodle breeders in the Northwest for quite a few years now. Cool. And they're making some major progress. 
Oh, awesome. I can't wait to hear about that. And first, I like to ask all our guests about their personal dog story. So could you tell us a little bit about your history with dogs? You know, did you have dogs growing up? And how did you go from there to becoming involved in the world of dogs? Well, actually, I, nothing I've ever done in my life has been on purpose. Everything is just <laughs> kind of one thing's led to another to another. Um, got my first show dog in 1958. It was a toy poodle. We did, so I started in poodles. We did our most breeding in whippets. We did our most winning in Dobermans. And we were all breed handlers. So I've got a pretty solid background in the majority of breeds. Did you do only toy poodles or did you make your way up to standards as well? Never had standards. I had both minis and toys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also had small children and there was not time for standard poodle hair and kids in the same lifetime. <laughs> this is true. There's, there's shedding and then there's the grooming requirements of that big old dog that grows hair forever. <laughs> yes. So what I'm interested in is how you got into speaking about and writing about structure in particular. And I think you, you've done some judging as well, which involves looking at structure. Bob and I had done a lot of breeding between the two of us. And we were very involved in the breeding program for most of our big clients. But between the clients and us, we've actually bred uh, 26 different litters of breeds. Mm -hmm. And we were almost comically amused at how many mistakes we made picking puppies. I don't know anybody in our sport who hasn't kept something that didn't turn out to be what they thought it might. I don't know anybody who hasn't picked themselves for when they sold us a pet and lost in their gene pool. And we kept thinking, what are we missing here? There's got to be something we're not looking at correctly when we are looking at puppies. And so we started out in the sojourn to see if we could figure out what it was. And the only reason we did this is because we wanted to know why we were messing up. We had no idea it would ever go into public usage. And so we started with anatomy professor of a vet school. We worked at three vet schools. We were working with lots of vets. We were also working with a lot of engineers. But because we were dog people, we went to dog people who were engineers. Made perfect sense to us. And we were learning bits and pieces and some really interesting stuff, but really nothing that, that was putting this package together. And so our main mentor through all of it, his name was Dr. Barclay Slocum. He was a world-renowned orthopedic surgeon. He was fascinated by what we were trying to accomplish. And so we did a lot of litters down at his clinic and he would get, he would x-ray, he would palpate, he would get bones out and show us how things work. Um, and it was, it was a fascinating experience and we were learning lots, but we still weren't learning what we needed to know about puppies. So one night, late at night, the phone rings and it's Dr. Slocum. He says, Pat, I think I got it figured out. He said, I want you to do whatever it takes to find a structural engineer who has never owned or lived with an animal in his life. He said, I think the problem with all you dog people is you look at these dogs with your heart (laughs) and your mind. So it took us a long time to find one. He was a local professor. And it was really kind of comical because he didn't really want to talk to us because he didn't like dogs. But we finally offered him enough money to where he was willing to sit down with us. And from the very first appointment we had with him, we knew we had found the answers we were after. That it doesn't matter if you're breeding dogs, if you're building skyscrapers, if you're building bridges. If you don't build things for the purpose you use them, they break. It is that simple. And so that's how everything came about. 
How so interesting. I've been evaluating puppies now for 30 years. I've evaluated a little over 40,000 eight-week-old puppies. The data that I have is just absolutely mind-boggling. And it is incredibly, incredibly accurate. Uh-huh. That is really neat. I, you know, I have a concept of structure. If I'm thinking of buildings, you know, I know what the word means, but when it comes to dogs, the av- you know, what does the average pet owner need to know about structure? What, how would you define structure or proper structure for a dog in general outside of breed specifics? Anybody who breeds dogs needs to know everything they possibly can about structure. And I don't care if you're a show breeder, if you're breeding Labradoodles, if you're a commercial breeder in the Midwest. If you're breeding dogs, it's your responsibility to be producing the healthiest, soundest, happiest dogs you can. So the better a dog is made, the less likely they are to break, the less likely they are to break down. And when they start breaking and they break down, it also affects the temperament. So structure is absolutely critical for any living being to lead the best quality of life they can. And in Labradoodles, in Doodles period, temperament is number one. But temperament is also very connected to structure. Because the more you break down, the more uncomfortable you are, the more it affects your temperament. And so you have a, a, a toy pet dog, and he doesn't want to sit on your lap. He snaps when somebody reaches for him. He doesn't want to do the things that the family wants to do because he hurts. That's a dog whose structure is affecting its ability to do what it was bred for. So in thinking about, and this might be a very long answer, but in thinking about the, the parts that make doodles, which, and I'm thinking broadly, like golden doodles, early generation Labradoodles and Australian Labradoodles. So it's basically mini and standard poodles, golden retrievers, Labradors. Um, I know Australian Labradoodles might have some Cocker Spaniel in there. You know, going through each breed, what is it about that breed that is structurally sound and what are the strengths and weaknesses that can come about? And we can take it one breed at a time if that's if that works better. Uh, the most important part of breed type in any breed is its ability to do what it was bred for. So your Goldens and Labs and Cockers were all bred to hunt feathered game under the direction of man. And the Poodles were originally also bred as hunters. So all all four of those breeds were basically bred for the same purpose. And that is to hunt feathered game under the direction of man, which, which is why, as long as they're well made, are wonderful pets. And in most breeds, there's of course a few exceptions, but in most breeds, dogs have three natural balance points. Number one, if you draw a line across the back all the way forward, the entire head must be above that line. Second line is to draw a line from the ground up, and this is with a dog standing in a correct position. So from the ground up, right up the center of the front legs, the entire neck must be in front of that line. And the third line is to drop a plumb line from the ischium, which is the bone that sticks out at the base of the tail, from the point of the buttocks 
to the ground and that land that line should land on the tips of the toes those three lines are mother nature's natural balance point the closer a dog is to those points the more able they are to hold still hmm. the hardest thing you do is hold still in most litters everybody's favorite ones are the busiest ones they're the first one out of the box they're so cute people watch them all the time Almost always, those are amongst your least quality puppies you have. Because the reason they're busy is because they can't hold still. Hmm. I like the lazy ones. <laughs> and the more they move, the busier, the more of a habit it becomes and the busier they get. Huh. So the best puppies in most litters are totally missed because nobody pays any attention to them because they don't do anything. Because the better you're made, the more comfortable you are in your skin. And when they're eight weeks old, which is the only time I look at puppies, when they're eight weeks old, there's really no reason for them to do anything yet. But yet puppies are supposed to be more bouncy and curious and exploring than, you know, a nine-year-old dog. So how do you balance that? Oh, there's, normal there's a big, 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 big difference okay. between a puppy that's too busy and a puppy that is a nice, healthy sound book. Oh, very interesting. Big difference. Okay, so most of our listeners are pet owners. They're not breeders, although there might be some breeders that are listening. Um, they're not obviously not people who take their dogs for confirmation because they're mixed breeds. Um, so if somebody was going to look at a litter, you know, somewhere between five and eight weeks, is there any tip you could give them to judge a dog that's, you know, moving too much, a puppy that's moving too much versus just a normal puppy? To, be, to begin with. The reason I only look at puppies at eight weeks, and I will look at them within three days of eight weeks. Mm -hmm. So if puppies are born on a Thursday, they're eight weeks old, eight Thursdays down the line. Then I'll look at that litter within three days on either side of that Thursday. So I've got a seven-day window. Mm -hmm. The reason it is so critical is that tissue does not have enough natural strength to hold structure in place before eight weeks so you can put a puppy that five six seven weeks on a table and pretty well make it look any way you want it to look and almost all breeders have the tendency to do that but by the time they're eight weeks old that tissue has strengthened enough to where you can't do that. then all of the bones in the body grow at different rates they are as similar in proportion as they are throughout the growth of the dog. So if you look at a puppy at any time other than that eight week, you have absolutely no idea if you're really looking at the puppy or if you might be looking at a growth stage that puppy's in. Hmm. And the minute any bone grows out of relationship to the bones it works with, it changes both angles and it changes the way the tissue works on the joint. And the more incorrectness you have in the structure of the dog, the more it affects their quality of life. Then also, there's no muscle compensation built at eight weeks. So most puppies start looking better by the time they're nine or 10 weeks old because they start building muscles to compensate for their weaknesses. Mm -hmm. But that compensation only lasts while they're in their prime. No matter how much anybody thinks you're going to stay in your prime, it's just a fact of life that tissue breaks down with age. So everything that's wrong with you when you're young is going to be back in spades when you get older. And the more issues you have as a youngster, 
the more the dog's going to suffer as it ages. Mm-hmm. We have a, a very, very, very good rehab vet here locally in Portland. And she recently told me that over half of her clients today are leverages. Wow. And that is, to me, criminal. Mm-hmm. The amount of dogs that are being produced for the buying public are dogs that are going to break down and need the kind of money to keep them, keep them even halfway healthy. I think that's totally wrong. Yeah, that's very sad. I think there's a probably a large proportion of that happen is because they're so popular and everybody's breeding them. So they're not always starting from dogs with solid structure in the first place. Well, that's true, too. And you can't blame anybody for not knowing what they don't know. Yeah. But you can blame them if they don't want to learn. Right. And I believe very, very strongly that all of our breeders of every breed that's out there should not be breeding anything but the best quality dogs they possibly can get their hands on. Mm-hmm. And you don't keep anything out of a litter to go forward with unless it's a quality dog that came out of a quality litter. Right. I wholeheartedly agree with you. If, but if you're start, and this is not really a but, but <laughs> if you're starting with one breed mixed with another breed and you're getting first generation offspring, no matter how amazing those first two dogs are, the fact that they're, they, has, they start with different structure that's mixed, wouldn't that predict well, more variability? Not really, because basically you're talking about four breeds, your labs, your goldens, your cockers, and your poodles that were all bred for the same purpose. Mm-hmm. So they are very similar in structure. But yet you wouldn't want a golden to have a poodle structure or a lab to, like, there's still that fine difference, you know, in, in height and leg length. And isn't there? I don't know. Uh, no, they all should have 50% leg. Uh-huh. That is 50% from the elbow up and 50% from the elbow down. Okay. All four of those breeds should have that. Um, poodles are square. Labrad- Labradors can be square or slightly off square. Cockers and Goldens are slightly longer than tall. Mm-hmm. We're talking very, very minor differences in the actual proportions of those four breeds. Height has no bearing on a toy, a toy poodle. Okay. One of my very first mentors in poodles told me that the most important part of breed type is if you had a picture of a poodle and there was no reference to size in the picture, you should never be able to tell what variety it is. Mm. A toy should not look like a toy. It should look like a little poodle. The standard shouldn't look like a standard. It should look like a big poodle. But they should all look exactly the same. Is there any particular, for you know each of these parent breeds that make up the most common doodles, are there any common strengths or weaknesses to each breed? You know, so that are, do poodles, are they more likely to have a certain structural problem than a golden would or anything like that? Yes and no. Of those, of all the breeds that we're talking about, Goldens are probably, probably have the least quality health. They have a lot of health issues in Goldens. Mm-hmm. They don't have in labs and things. You know, there's no such thing as being 100% clear of all the health effects right. in people or in dogs. 
but goldens are pretty much towards the top of the list in a lot of the problems they have. That darn cancer. Uh, cancer, uh, hip dysplasia, uh, heart issues. They're not one of our, our healthiest breeds out there. And when you're, when you're mixing breeds like they have done with the Labradoodles, you have to realize that nobody took a fabulous, fabulous poodle and bred it to a fabulous, fabulous golden. Mm-hmm. Because people with that quality of dogs would never crossbreed them. And so you're starting almost always with inferior dogs to begin with. And so it's your job then to breed up from there, which is why you don't keep anything out of a litter unless it's better than what it came out of, because you need to be improving the quality of the dogs, because the better they're made, the better of a quality of life they have. And so we only need to, should be breeding the good ones that come out of a good litter. You have to remember that all dogs have two genes for everything. The one you see and the one you don't see. Statistically speaking, the one you don't see is most likely represented by what was in the majority of the litter. So if you have a beautiful, beautiful dog or bitch that you've decided you're going to maintain for your own breeding program, but if it came out of a litter with all kinds of issues, the odds are that will never be a good producer because the odds are it carries all those other genes too. Right. Much better off keeping a nice dog out of a good litter then you are a great dog out of a bad litter. What a great point. All the recessive genes that it didn't display are back there. All hiding. Yeah, yeah. I've been having a lot of fun doing these podcasts, interviewing interesting people, learning along with you. I don't really want to stop. However, producing a podcast takes time and money. I'm willing to put in the time, but I don't have podcast production skills. And so we have to pay for a professional to put these podcasts together. This is where you come in. If you're getting anything out of listening to these podcasts, please consider supporting the Doodle Kisses podcast. If every single person who listened to at least one episode gave $1, we could cover the production of several episodes. If you gave $5, well, we'd be done fundraising for the year go check out our GoFundMe page. The link is in our show notes. Now back to the learning. What about, so, you know, Labradoodles, Golden Doodles, they're the ones that are most common and they're the ones I think more people are likely to find decent doodles from because they've been around longer. Some of them have formed organizations and they're they're more likely to do health testing, et cetera. But lately there's a lot of newer, large, doodle mixes like Bernese Mountain Dog poodle mixes and Newfoundland <laughs> Newfoundland poodle mixes. Burners are by far the most unhealthy dog we have. Yeah. Their lifespan is so short. It is so short. They have so many issues. They have so many temperament issues. They have so many structural issues. Of all the dogs you could breed to, I'll tell you, Burners would not even be on my list. But you know why they're getting popular? Because they're adorable and people can't see past that. <laughs> Absolutely. And then they grow up to be these nightmares 
of health issues that you're spending every bit of the money you can scrape together trying to keep your dog healthy. And that's not fair. That's no. not fair to do, to do to the buying public. The marketing around that, though, is that, well, Bernese might have shorter lifespans, but we're breeding them with the poodle. So now they're going to have longer lifespans. Yeah, right. And how do you know? You just don't know. You don't know. But remember, if you breed a black dog and a white dog, they don't come out and break. No. No, <laughs> exactly. So, so if you breed a short-lived one to a long-lived one, they don't come out in the middle. Right. We're going to have some puppies that are short-lived and some puppies that are long-lived. I mean, that's just the simplicity of genetics. Yeah, I always like to compare it to um, a woman and a man having children, and they have, let's say, six children. If the mom has curly blonde hair and the dad has stick straight black hair, they're not going to be brown, loose waves, and they're not going to look like six tuplets. <laughs> they will each have pieces of each parent. So one thing I had recently, um, a Bernadoodle Foster in my care, and he was beautiful, the most beautiful coat. When he walked, he looked like he was a show dog, even though I don't really know what that looks like. He was just very prancy. And something about him struck me because I had him in my care after speaking with your assistant who brought up the term U-neck, which I had never heard of. But in looking at him, I suspected he might have a U-neck. <laughs> and I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that and if that's something that's common in Bernese specifically. Incredibly common in, common in Bernese. And it's also a problem in poodles. And it's a terrible problem in golden retrievers. Now, is that just their natural way of having a neck? Or is that when, it's, when a bad poodle comes out? A U-neck, and it's spelled E-W-E like a sheep because all sheep have U-neck. But in dogs, it's caused when you have improper ligaments that are holding the bones together in the neck. And so you cannot bend a dog the wrong direction. You can't bend his back the wrong direction. They only bend one direction. Because all of the vertebrae on the, on the back, on the spine, have spines that stick up and those spines act as mother nature's locking mechanism so the dog can't bend that direction well the neck vertebrae don't have those spines on so the only thing that holds them in proper alignment are the ligaments ligaments hold the bones together tendons attach the muscles to the bone and so if you have improper ligaments that allows the neck to bend both directions so the neck is very weak It'll be weak their entire life. Uh, they're not good swimmers. They're not good carrying anything in their mouth. And it hurts. It always hurts. Hmm. And the reason I know that is because I personally have a unit. And Mother Nature builds muscles to compensate for it. But again, those muscles are only good while you're in your prime. And so. A dog with a U-neck is clumsier because your head creates your balance. Hmm. If you have a weak neck, your head moves. And if your head moves, your body moves with it. So a dog or a person with a U-neck will be much clumsier than without. And because poodles and goldens 
have inadvertently bred for you next because they like the carriage. It creates an upright head carriage, and people think that's really pretty. And so they have inadvertently bred for it. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not looking for that kind of a carriage in a burner. But after the Second World War, there was very, very few burners left in Europe. And in order to save the breed, they took those few burners and they bred them to each other every direction they possibly could to build numbers. And so there must have been a unit or two amongst that tiny, tiny gene pool that they resurrected the breed from. Because I have never looked at a litter of burners anywhere in the world that did not have a unix in it. And it's one of the only breeds that I'm likely to find every puppy in the litter with a unix. Uh-huh. So breeding burners and poodles together to me is a nightmare. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I had never noticed it until I had learned about it from speaking to your assistant and then watching this puppy. He looked like a duck sometimes. It was funny and adorable, but it was so different than what I'd seen in my Labradoodles. So how does a how does a dog structure play into orthopedic issues with hips or knees? Knees luxating patellas were the kneecap and a patella is the kneecap just like ours and the genetic component of luxating patellas or kneecaps is that the groove that's that sits in the middle is too shallow so the knee can slip back and forth structure has no impact on luxating patellas they are or they are not um, they can you can create a luxating patella from an injury, but the majority of the time, it's just a genetic component that you need to do everything in your power to breed away from in your breeding program. Mm-hmm. Hip dysplasia, there are two different scientific thoughts in hip dysplasia. I happen to be of the belief of the majority of scientists who believe that hip dysplasia is 100% genetically predisposed that you cannot cause it if the genes aren't there. And it's very multifaceted. So it's never going to be a simple anything to breed away from. Mm -hmm. But if you have the gene, the more structural issues you have in your rear assembly, the higher the odds are it'll come to the surface. Because if one joint doesn't work properly, it puts more pressure on the joint above it. And if that joint breaks down or has issues also, then it puts three times the pressure on the joint above that. So the more structural issues you have, if you have the gene, the higher the incidence is that it will manifest itself. I appreciate you saying that because I... Sometimes I'm frustrated when I hear from breeders or other people that, you know, well, just don't let the dog gain too much weight or do these activities. And that's going to make a big difference when that just doesn't make sense because dogs for years have been doing difficult tasks. They're dogs. They're dogs. You have to let them be dogs. Absolutely. And if they're dogs and don't carry the genes, nothing is going to break down those hips. But if it breaks down the hips, as a breeder, you need to know it's there. Mm -hmm. Hiding it so it doesn't come to the surface doesn't make it better in your breeding program. 
The only way we can breed away from things is to know what we have so we pay attention to in our breeding program. But if you're making sure your puppies don't do any of these things that might bring it to the surface, all you're doing is masking it. You're not dealing with the fact that you've got the problem and do what you can to breed away from it. Right. So as f- the other thing I'm curious about knees and wondering if you have any knowledge of this. Um, my Labradoodle had two knee surgeries, one on each knee because she tore her CCL. Um, and the way she runs, it's not so much what I see in her running, but she did more damage to our lawn than any of my other dogs combined just because she would pivot so and make divots in the lawn when she ran. Um, when I took her to the first vet for an evaluation, the vet said something that I didn't fully understand about her stifle. Because of her stifle angle, blah, 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 it probably made it more likely. What Can, can you speak on that at all? Like, is, Are there certain structural aspects of the leg? Uh, the straighter the stifle joint, that's the knee joint. Uh-huh. The straighter that joint, the higher the incidence is of torn cruciates. Okay. Then the number one cause of torn cruciates is early spay neuters. Mm-hmm. Because the hormones close a growth plate. All bones have growth plates in That's how a bone grows. The hormones close the plates. So if you remove the hormones too early, then the plates don't close. So then the bones get longer than they're supposed to be. And when you change the length of those bones, you change the length of the angle. So those longer bones in the rear legs now increase the odds of damaging the ligaments. And then add to that that the hormones also is what creates mature muscle. It's the difference between a stallion and a gelding. When you remove those muscles too early, the muscles do not mature. So now you've got longer bones with less angles, with less muscles to control it, which is why early spay neutering is the number one cause of torn ligaments in the knees and dogs. So if you have that proper line from the point of the buttock to the ground that lands on the tips of the toes, that allows you, or that, that line in itself, will create the proper angle. Hmm. But if your foot is in front of that line, under that line, or in front of the line, then your stifle angle is going to be much straighter. So all of that shows in eight-week-old puppies. In eight-week-old puppies, you know who the susceptible ones to torn cruciates are. And that is expensive, expensive surgery. Yeah, it was not fun. <laughs> we, have um, a, we have a specialist here in, in Portland that all he does is need. He travels around to all the clinics and does their knee surgery. He does the TPLO cruciate surgery. Uh-huh. And right now, it's $4,600 a leg. Wow. That is incredible. Pet owners do not have $9,000 laying around to fix the legs on their dogs. And if they tear one, they have an 80% chance of tearing the other one. Yep. my So my doodle fit both of those things. The vet said her... She must, the vet must have said this, but something about her stifle. So probably her stifle was straighter and she's a rescue. So she was uh, spayed as a puppy. So she had both of those risk factors, I guess, although I didn't realize that at the time. So you mentioned, you know, 
evaluating these puppies at eight weeks, give or take three days. So a lot of breeders really choose the families for their puppies earlier than that, you know, maybe seven weeks, some. some none, of the, none of the breeders I work with. That's great. That's great. Because even when I spoke with a behaviorist, you know, she recommended puppies stay with mom up to 12 weeks just to learn more bite inhibition and all of that stuff. Well, personally, I'm against that. Are you? Why? I am. Um, because if the litter stays together and stays with mom, uh-huh. uh, which passed about nine weeks, I find that they don't have as much human interaction as they will have if they leave a little earlier mm-hmm. because they bond with each other mm-hmm. instead of their owners. Kind of like litter mate syndrome. Yeah. But very, bigger. very, very similar. <laughs> Uh, but I hate bitches removed too early. Right. Because my favorite behavioralist happens to be John Rogerson from England. Mm-hmm. And John is the one who taught me that if you have your facility set up to where your bitches have 24-7 access to their puppies until they leave, that the mother is actually teaching them, I'm leaving, but I'll be back. So bitches who have constant access to their puppies almost never have puppies that have separation anxiety. Wow, that's interesting. And I found that very, very fascinating because uh-huh. so many Labradoodle people that I know, the bitches are in guardian homes mm-hmm. and they let the, the mother take care of the puppies until they're four, maybe five weeks old and then send the bitch home to their home. Mm-hmm. So the puppies are losing that entire critical, critical growth period of the mother teaching them so much, including the bite inhibition or the the separation anxiety and the bite inhibition. You know, they're dogs. We cannot teach dogs how to be dogs. Right. Other dogs have to teach them how. Mm -hmm. And a mama dog telling them to knock it off has much bigger impact. So we can all agree eight weeks at least. Some people will say, you know, 10 to 12 and you say eh, eight to nine. And the reason I don't like them kept on um, later than that is because you're back to that bonding with each other like litter mates do. Mm-hmm. And it takes away a lot of that real important socializing period of humans. Right. Now, the exception of that is toys. Toys? Toy, toy dogs. Because they're not strong, strong enough mentally to leave until they're 10 to 12 weeks old. Mm. They're much less mentally strong than a larger dog is. So if you've got really, really small minis, then I would be keeping them longer. Okay. But So... Breeders, in your opinion, breeders shouldn't be selecting puppies or letting owners select puppies before eight weeks because they can't fully evaluate the structure. But at the same time, I'm wondering if if all of them are going to pet homes, you know, they're not all going to pet homes. What if they are? Does it matter? But but almost never do they. Okay. the, The breeder is always considering keeping one for their own breeding program. Oh, that's true. They sell breeding stock to other breeders. Mm -hmm. And I cannot believe the amount of puppies that I have seen pictures of that they're offering for sale as a breeder 
when they're tiny baby puppies. Mm-hmm. You don't have a clue if that is a breeding quality dog. Right. And if it's, and you can't make those decisions until they're eight weeks. So almost everybody that I work with now, um, they let the, the buyers come and play with all the puppies, socialize with all of them, and let them know no final decisions will be made on which puppy you get until after they've been evaluated. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, the breeders that I'm working with have made enormous strides with their breeding program. Oh, really? Yeah. Of all the litters I do, and I do about 300 litters of puppies a year. Of all the litters I do, when people start breeding, litters are about 50% pet quality, which is 50% absolutely right there or out of the gene pool. Those are the puppies that are going to have issues. So it's very, very important that you pay attention to what kind of a lifestyle those buyers have. It is not fair to sell a dog with straight shoulders to somebody who wants a dog to jog with them every day because they will destroy their dog doing it. And so it's really important that they learn the strengths and weaknesses of every puppy so they can place it in the appropriate home for them. How much consistency have you found in the labradoodle puppies that you have in the labradoodle litters that you've looked at well the longer i work with breeders the more consistent they get okay because they are learning that they don't breed anything but if they're quality ones they don't keep anything if it's not a quality dog out of a good litter and so every one of their litters is getting better and better and when like i started to say when they first start breeding litters are just about half pet quality I've got breeders now that every once in a while they'll end up with a with a litter that has no pet quality puppies in it. Wow. And litter and maybe one or two in a normal size litter. And so their success rate of producing better quality puppies for the public. They are doing a fabulous job on. That's good to know, especially from somebody who's been involved in the pure breed world. I know there's a lot of um, criticism of Labradoodle and Golden Doodle breeders. So it's nice to hear that you've had good experiences and at least with Labradoodle breeders. Do you do evaluations of temperament when you do your structural? Yes, I do. And basically, I'm looking for for very simple genetic temperament traits. I'm looking for aggression. I'm looking for fear. I'm looking for insecurity. I'm looking for independence. Those are all genetic issues. Mm -hmm. And again, it's important that the breeders learn what they can about temperaments in the proper placement of the puppies. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important, (laughs) especially since a lot of people, a lot of people who get doodles tend to be first time dog owners. And don't have a lot of knowledge about temperament and have a lot of expectations. And they've heard things about doodles that may or may not be true. Um, and then it's very easy to be disappointed if you haven't chosen a, a reputable breeder, <laughs> because then you'll end up with a puppy much more wild than you expected or that sheds when you thought they all don't shed. You want to get on that subject? <laughs> sure. <laughs> we have a little time left. There is absolutely no such thing 
as a non-shedding dog or a hyperallergenic dog. There is no such thing. Uh, you think you don't shed? Look the shower <laughs> drain in your shower. Right. All hair sheds because the way hair grows is a hair follicle only has room for one guard hair. That's the, the longer hair. Only has room for one hair. When a new hair grows, it pushes the old one out. That's what shedding is. So all dogs shed, period. All dogs shed exactly the same percentage of their hair. So you'll have some dogs, um, like a, a Sholo, a Mexican hairless dog. They almost always have hair on top of their head. So that a little tiny bit of hair is going to shed also. But very few people in the world are allergic to dog hair. Most people who have allergies to animals are allergic to the dander, which yes. is skin. And so all dogs have skin, mm -hmm. no matter how much hair they have or don't have. So every time a hair falls out, it has a little bit of skin with it. And so then you have dander. So basically, you have two different kinds of hair. You have hair that falls out all over your house, like your Labradoodles or like your Labradors, like your Golden Retrievers, like your Doberman, uh, like a Chihuahua. That hair falls out everywhere. So you have hair everywhere. You also have dander everywhere. And then you have the kind of dogs such as poodles, Shih Tzus, Old English sheep dogs. You have the kind of hair that when it falls out, it gets tangled in the rest of the hair, which is what causes mats. Mm -hmm. So a dog that mats, that is the hair that they have shed that has gotten caught. And so most people who have dogs that mat have a tendency to either send it to a groomer or they brush the dog in one location in their home be it in the laundry room or on the floor in front of the TV or whatever. So the dander is more confined because they usually groom it only in one place. So the dander isn't all over the house. So a dog that mad is a dog that people are much less likely to react to because the hair is more confined. But it has nothing to do with it being hyperallergenic. There's no such thing. Right. I hate that term. I've had pushback when I've, you know, written against the idea of hypoallergenic, you know, because someone will get um, picky about the definition of hypo meanings, means low. And so they'll say, well, you can still have lower <laughs> allergenic potential. But the way most people, the lay person looks at that word, they think will not make allergies react at all, which is not the case. Somebody could be allergic to a poodle or the saliva too, right? Has that same protein that the dander can have. You know what I wish? <laughs> I wish every doodle breeder used you or if I could afford to send you to my future litter to pick out my puppy. <laughs> I imagine that in addition to doing puppy selection, you could train a breeder, right, in doing it themselves, correct or no? Yeah, yes, you can. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time to learn it all. Most people have a tendency to learn a piece at a time. But when I'm doing a litter, I always go through the litter twice. I go through it first and I write everything down. 
And then we sit and talk about the litter. And I ask them what they think and who they like and who they think are the best ones and who they think are the least quality. And, and so we discuss all of that before we discuss the puppy. And so the breeders that I work with are better and better and better and better uh, continually of knowing which are the better ones in the litter. Mm-hmm. So even though they don't have it all yet, they're all much better than they were when they started. And I do, I do fly around the country looking at puppies. Um, and I have products. I have a DVD, which is a couple hours of litter evaluation. It's called the puppy puzzle because it's just one piece of everything you need to be looking at. Um, and then I've written four different books. And every one of those is very different from each other, but every one of them helps you do a better job of producing quality puppies. And I'm a very, very firm believer that the more we learn, the more our dogs benefit. Yes, I agree with you. Totally. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you think is important to talk about before we go? Well, I don't think so. Um, Lori ran, my office gal ran a, a, a Black Friday sale. Mm-hmm. And if any of your listeners are interested in any of my products, Lori said that she would give them that the Black Friday prices if they call okay. because they heard it on your podcast. Okay, that sounds good. And this podcast may not air till January, February. Okay. Um, but I will, yeah. So call Lori. Call. <laughs> they heard it on the podcast and she'll give them uh, the Black Friday prices. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much, Pat. This was very educational. And I think our listeners will have a lot of points to think about. And hopefully some breeders were listening. Um, it sounds like you see a lot of Labradoodle breeders in the Northwest. I do. Um, so, you know, keep your eye out and ask ask your breeder if they're from this area. If they've ever used Pat, that might be a, a good selling point <laughs> for them. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast. If you have any ideas or recommendations for future topics or guests, send me an email at admin at doodlekisses.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at doodlekisses.com. Also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts so you can have every episode ready to listen to as soon as it comes out. The show notes will link you to our GoFundMe page as well as links to some of the things we discussed in today's episode. Talk to you next time on the next episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast.